In the first hour of the Eve of Friday, we read a bit more than uh, four continuous chapters from the Gospel of John. And there's a verse in John 16 that we say um, that I want to focus on today. One that I think we read rather quickly and lightly without much thought, and one that uh, might seem to have a very apparent meaning to it, uh, but in fact it might contain something much deeper than that. It's commonly translated as the following. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now, there's a problem with this translation right from the outset, and this is a common translation that we all use. Um, the very first word in that line is mistranslated. And in that, it will give us a key as to what it is that we're going to be speaking about here. Here is the correct translation. It's the woman, when she is giving birth, feels anguish because her hour has come. But when she produces the child, she no longer remembers the suffering on account of the joy that a human being has been born into the universe. Not a woman, the woman. This might seem like we're splitting hairs, like we're just looking too much into something so that we can just maybe have a talk. Uh, but it's necessary to make this clarification because of what it is that we're supposed to understand about Christ and what it is that he's trying to communicate to us through the gospel according to St. John. There's something very interesting that, that um, I think has been lost now, which is that uh, oftentimes when we read, especially during this week, we'll take different segments from different uh, gospels and we'll just combine them together and we lose the fact that there's a, a continuous theme in a particular gospel. And this is one of the themes that's in the Gospel of John. Firstly, at the outset, let's actually think about what it is that's being said here. This doesn't align with anything that we know about in reality, if you actually give it some thought. Most women, when it's time for them to give birth, are not exceedingly sorrowful because they're going to give birth. Most women go through the nine-month period of being pregnant, and by the end of it, they really want it to be over. They go through maybe a month or two of wishing that the time would actually come, and then when the time comes, they're very happy. They're very excited. But this isn't what's being spoken about here. And so that should also clue us in that there's something deeper that's being said here. Who is this woman? that's spoken above. Let's step back for a moment and again consider the entirety of the gospel according to St. John. The very first words in the gospel are in the beginning. Now any Jew worth his salt would know that if a book was starting out with the words in the beginning that it was a hat tip right to the book of Genesis. The Jews the way that they named their books are by the first few words in the book. So they wouldn't call it Genesis, they would call it Bereshit, and Bereshit means in the beginning. And so when John writes this, and he writes in the beginning, any Jew that would read this would know that this is making reference to the, to the book of Genesis. Now, oftentimes I think that's where 
our thought process ends. And we say, ah, he's just talking about in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And, and that's where we end it. He's just taking sort of a divergent route. That's not what John is doing here. There are so many themes that develop in the, the gospel according to John that if we were very mindful of what was being said, we could actually see something that was alluded to in Genesis time and again. So, in that spirit, let's go back to Genesis. When Adam did not find a helpmate amongst any of the animals that he named and had dominion over, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib which the Lord had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Now take that and go back to Christ on the cross. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Adam is put into a deep sleep, and God takes his rib, he takes something from his side, and from that is formed woman. And that's why she's called woman, is because she comes out of man. Christ himself falls into a deep sleep as well, right? When we speak about uh, the death of a Christian, we don't say that they are dead, we say that, that they're departed or that they have slept. And so he's in a deep sleep. This is what Moses was alluding to when he's writing Genesis. This is the, the prophetic vision that doesn't only look backwards, but also looks forwards to Christ. And so we see what comes out of Christ's side is the, the water and the blood, which is a symbol of baptism and the Eucharist. And so the woman that emerges from the side of Christ is the church. Up until this point in the story of creation, Adam's wife has not been given a name. She is called woman. Something remarkable happens, however. When Adam and his wife fall into sin, God pronounces the judgment on them, and this is what he says. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain and your groaning, and in pain, in pain, you shall bring forth children. Then to Adam he said, in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground from which you were taken. Earth you are, and to earth you shall return. So Adam called his wife life, or Eve, or Haya, or Hawa, because she was the mother of all living. Have you ever thought about what's being said here? I don't think most people align this. If we read it strictly literally, it doesn't make any sense. God has just pronounced and confirmed for them the death sentence that they have brought onto themselves. And so Adam looks at his wife and says, I will name you life because you are the mother of all living. What was Moses talking about? It's paradoxical. And so we'll see in a bit how this is flipped on itself. Let's see the development of the woman 
in the Gospel of John. At the wedding of Cana at Cana of Galilee, Christ's mother, who is not named, approaches him to tell her to tell him they have no wine. In the Psalms, it says that wine gladdens the heart of man. Christ's mother tells Christ essentially, they have no more joy. And how does Christ respond? Woman, what is this to me and you? My hour is not yet come. Many people are surprised and scandalized by the fact that he calls his mother woman, and many people have commented on this over the years. Christ will call many people woman in this gospel, but be mindful of what happens when he's saying it. Christ is essentially saying, O woman, O church, the hour of your joy is not yet here. I haven't yet, now fill in the blank. Most people would say what he should probably be saying here is that I haven't yet died. Because when we think of the hour in which Christ will bring us joy, that's the hour of his death. But that's not what's being said in that verse. Let's see the original verse again that we're discussing. She no longer remembers the suffering on account of the joy that a human being has been born. So really, it's Christ saying, I haven't yet been born. What in the world does he mean? Let's see where else he speaks about the woman. Again, with the Samaritan woman, who's unnamed. Christ asks her for water. They have some discussion about water. He asks her to bring her husband. She says that she has no husband. He says, you rightly, you rightly say that you have no husband because you had five husbands, and the man that you now have is not your husband. And so she replies to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you say that in Jeru Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. When her mind is on earthly things, when it's on water, when they're talking about her husband, when they're talking about these kinds of things, gives her no designation. But once she recognizes that there's something special here, and she starts asking about something that's spiritual, he gives her this designation, woman. Again, keep that in mind. In John 20, when Christ has risen from the dead and Peter and John have already gone back to their homes after they've gone and seen the empty tomb, Mary Magdalene sees Christ but doesn't recognize him. And Jesus looks at her and he says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom do you seek? And she, supposing him to be the gardener. Now let's pause there for just a second. Because usually, when we read this, we'll probably think, oh, that was just included because she was so distraught, she was filled with tears, and she's very emotional, and so she doesn't recognize who it is that's in front of her. So she just recognizes him to be the gardener. 
But John doesn't do things randomly. When John is writing his gospel, he's not doing this randomly. He's trying to bring our minds back to something that was written in Genesis. Where do we see this kind of an interaction? When God made woman out of the side of Adam and, and he brings her to Adam, who do you think that she thought he was? Adam has a particular role. In Genesis 2.15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. So when she sees Adam, before she knows who he is, she supposes him to be the gardener. And that should stand out to us. Adam is the gardener. Mary Magdalene, supposing Christ to be the gardener, has this same dynamic there. Now, at that point, Adam identifies himself. He says, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, you are my wife. And then she knows who her identity is. And Christ also identifies himself at this point. Because again, these things are not random. But the way in which he does this is first by trying to shake her awake. He says, woman, why are you weeping? Church, why are you sad? I've already been born. The time of travail is over. I've already been born. But she doesn't get it. She supposes him to be the gardener, and so she has this dialogue with him, and then he calls her Mary, and then she realizes who he is, but she tells him something. She says, Rabboni. She doesn't say, my Lord. She doesn't say, my God. She calls him Rabboni, and he tells her, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. What does that mean? What is he saying here? He's saying, you're still thinking in terms of the flesh. You're still thinking in terms of worldly things here. Raise your mind to the spiritual. Understand what it is that has been affected here is spiritual, so that when you see me, you should recognize me, not as teacher, but as husband, as the bridegroom. And you are the woman because you are the church. Everything here is connected. We see that the woman, then, in the gospel, according to John, is neither specifically the Holy Virgin Mary, it's not the Samaritan woman, it's not Mary Magdalene. The woman in the gospel, according to John, is the church. When we read, as we read earlier today, the chapter in Isaiah about the suffering servant, which is the majority of it is in Isaiah 53, we encounter one of the most telling prophecies concerning who the Messiah is and how he'll suffer for us. The conclusion of that section reads as follows. He willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels, yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. This may as well be a verse from the New Testament, right? He's in between the thieves 
and so he's counted among the thieves. It's, it just reads as though it's from the New Testament. See what follows in the very next verse. Rejoice, childless one, who did not give birth. Burst into song and shout, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. How will the childless one have more children than the married one? This is a description of the church. The church who is the virgin mother gives birth to children who are more numerous than the people of Israel. How does she produce these children though? At the foot of the cross in John 19, it says, when Jesus saw his mother, notice again that she's unnamed, when he saw his mother, and the disciple whom he loved standing near, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. Who stands at the foot of the cross except the church? Two purposefully unnamed people whom Christ proclaims the church to be the mother and the son to be himself. He doesn't say, woman, behold your new son. Behold, John is now your son. He says, woman, behold your son. But we know she only has one son. And so he has identified himself so much with the disciple because the disciple has become such an image of Christ. What an honor. What glory is that? Can you imagine if Christ looked at you and said, Behold, I see myself. But again, how are these people born? When God created everything in Genesis 1, everything is done by command. Let there be light, let there be an expanse between the waters, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place, etc., except for one thing. When he makes man, he says, he doesn't say, let there be man. He says, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. It's not a command. It's a process of making that started. For man to be truly made into a human being, he must accept being made. He isn't a robot. He has free will and must choose freely to live with God. He's not fully man until he's in the likeness of God. Just because a man is born in the flesh doesn't mean he's fully a human being. When the archangel Gabriel appears to St. Mary, what's her response? She, sa she says, let it be to me according to your word. This let it be is the same word that God speaks in the beginning when he says, let there be light. Same Greek word, let it be, let there be. What she is confirming on behalf of all of humanity is that she is accepting becoming human because she accepts Christ to be in her. Now, when Christ hangs on the cross on the sixth day, 
And remember, Genesis says man is made on the sixth day. It's not that these things are coincidental, again, right? When Moses is writing, he's not only writing about what it is that's happened in the past. These things that happened in the past are speaking towards what it is that's happening here on the cross. Christ says on the cross, on the sixth day, it is finished. What is finished? His life, his mission. What's finished is the making of man. Man has finally been made into a human being. Now that Christ, who is become fully human being, gives the spirit up. In Genesis, when God makes Adam, it says, Then the Lord God formed man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. In John, it says, lowering his head, what's the common translation? He gave up the spirit. And this is something that we all say, right? When someone gives up the spirit. But that's not what it is that the Greek says. It doesn't say he gave up the spirit. Unfortunately, we don't have a word for it in English. But the word that is used here is the verb form of tradition. He traditioned the spirit. So it's like he handed it over to the person that was in front of him so that he could hand it over to someone else and hand it over to someone else. The tradition. So he's not traditioning it to the father in the Gospel of John. Who's he traditioning it to? Who's he giving the spirit to? to the ones that are standing in front of him, to the church. This is man being made. This is God breathing his spirit into man so that he could become a living being. Literally, his spirit is being breathed out so that man could be made. That's what makes Genesis scripture. It's not scripture because we look back and then we can argue back and forth about what it is that God did first and second. It's because it testifies about Christ. And this is what it is that Christ himself says. When he's on the road to Emmaus, he says, let me show you how all of those things in scripture speak about me. And so we understand something from this. It's by death that we are born for us to live we must die. This was the understanding of the church from the beginning. St. Ignatius of Antioch, while he's being held captive and is, is taken on the road to Rome, he's bound and chained, and he knows that he's going there, and they're going to put him in the Colosseum, and he's going to be eaten by the lions. He knows that this is going to happen. It's clear. They've been martyring people, and he knows what's going to happen to him. So he's on the road to Rome, and he writes several letters. And one of the letters that he writes is to the Romans. Now listen to what it is that he says. He says, it is better for me to die in, in Christ Jesus than to be king over the ends of the earth. I seek him who died for our sake. I desire him who rose for us. Pay attention here. Birth pangs are upon me. Suffer me, my brethren. Hinder me not from living. Do not wish 
me to die. Suffer me to receive the pure light. When I shall have arrived there, I will be a human being. Suffer me to follow the example of the passion of my God. What's he saying here? What's the understanding of the church? He understands that birth pangs are upon him. He's about to be born. He's going to be made into a living human being. By what? By suffering martyrdom. By dying. He wants to die for Christ because when he dies, that's when he's going to be a full human being. This is why the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The martyrs, those who appear to us to have died, are actually the ones that are living. This is how we're supposed to be Christian. Why do we celebrate the day of their martyrdom? Is it because that's the day that they died? It's their birth day. And we say the same thing in the Agbeya, in the ninth hour litanies, but we probably don't pay attention to it because again, it's mistranslated. In the litany it says, the world rejoices in that it has received salvation, but my, anyone know? My heart burns is what the translation says, but my heart burns when I behold your crucifixion. A wrong translation, unfortunately. The Arabic actually has it right. The Arabic says, Ahshai, which means my guts, or in this context, my womb. My womb burns when I behold your crucifixion. Now let's look back and see what it is that was being said again in John 16, because this is precisely where it is that this litany takes its inspiration from. Amen, amen, I tell you that you will weep and lament and the universe will rejoice. You will feel anguish, but your anguish will become joy. The woman, when she is giving birth, feels anguish because her hour is come. But when she produces the child, she no longer remembers the suffering on account of the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So now, I ask you, and I ask myself, first and foremost, do we die for Christ? Do we die to ourselves? If we're not human beings, what are we but animals that are driven by our fallen tendencies? We commit whatever sins we seem to find pleasurable. And these often know no bounds. How carnal are we? How beastly when we cheat on our spouses in our thoughts, if not in actuality. When we devour our brothers with shameful speech and gossip. When we tear to shreds the reputation of others when we see ourselves in first place because we want our way and we think that we've earned it. When we feel that we've sacrificed enough and we're wondering when people are gonna start sacrificing for us. When we fly into fits of rage because things don't happen exactly the way that we want them to. 
were worse than animals. Because they don't know what it is that they're doing. But we know better. Where is the Christian that's born to be in the image of Christ, formed at the foot of the cross, when our minds aren't even at the cross at all, when we reject every discomfort in our own lives, every bit of suffering we pray to be relieved from, every pain we blame on God. We want happiness and pleasure here and joy in the age to come. We seek after money. We hate each other because of politics. We'll stand here tom tomorrow wondering how the stock market is doing when we're supposed to be paying attention about what it is that's happening right here in front of us. Which man loves his wife enough to be able to sacrifice for her on a daily basis? Which wife submits to her husband willingly without screaming and shouting he doesn't deserve it? How often do we ignore those who are in need of an attentive ear, of some compassion, of some comfort, just because we'd much rather be doing something else with our time, like filling it with nonsense and staring at our phones? Do we even dare to be changed by these words anymore? Do we just come to church as a part of a routine, hear the words from the readings, pass the time by listening to a sermon, and walk out of here as though nothing happened? Are we even trying to improve anymore? Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Die. Die to yourself that you might live in Christ and that he might live in you so fully that you can truly be said to be a human being so that those things that are impossible without him can be done when we say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Not because we're mimicking him, not because we're pretending that we have the strength to do those things, because I assure you, anyone that has lived a day in this world knows that it's very challenging for us and sometimes impossible for us to be able to make the kinds of sacrifices that are asked of us as Christians. But we're able to do it because he lives in us, because he and I are so united that hopefully one day I could say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The woman in travail is our mother, the church. I wonder how long we'll keep her in travail until we're born. Glory be to God forever, amen.